Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? This is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed down the hall. There's programming there for them. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for being here at the 11 o'clock service at Community Christian Church. If you're joining us online, we are glad that you are here with us as well as we go through a series we've entitled, Yelp, You Actually Live Forever. Uh, right at the end of World War II in Europe, uh, this is April of 1945, General Dwight D. Eisenhower actually wrote a letter about a visit that he had made to one of the concentration camps in Germany. He wrote this, the things I saw, beggar description, the visual evidence and verbal testimony of starvation and cruelty and bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. And because of what he saw, Eisenhower then ordered the collection and documentation of the Holocaust. It resulted in 80,000 feet of film footage uh, that was then used as evidence in the Nuremberg trials, and Eisenhower on top of that collected uh, photos, including ones of himself at concentration camps. Now we're going through this YALF series, and we're taking just a little bit of time. I promise we're going to get to heaven one of these days, okay? But we're taking a little bit of time to understand why it is that we can trust what Christianity says about the afterlife. And we started last week up this thing that we called the apologetics pyramid. Last week in part one, we talked about level one, which is truth. Why can't everybody be right? Well, the answer is because there are absolute truths in the world. Truth is not relative. It's not determined by what we believe. Rather, truth is whatever is consistent with reality. And so what we find is that just every religious way makes absolute truth claims, and they all contradict each other, so they can't all be right. And our job is to, to discover which one lines up with reality. And so that moves us to level two, worldviews. Uh, this is the clash of the isms. There are three isms that dominate uh, religious worldviews around the globe. They are theism, atheism, and pantheism. And all of those religious systems contradict each other in their beliefs, so they cannot all be true. And what we found is that after we applied the tests of logic and livability, atheism and pantheism kind of failed the test. So we bump theism up to level three, and we say, can we see the fingerprints of God uh, in our world? And the answer is yes. Theism is just this belief that there is a God. He has created us. Uh, we are bodies, but we are also souls, and we do live forever. Uh, this theism uh, way would be recognized by Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Those are the major voices, and basically they would say uh, 
yes, there is a God, and you actually do live forever, okay? And so that bumps us up to the final three levels of the pyramid, and we're going really fast today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, so uh, I'm thankful that you're just going to stick with me today. By the time we get to the top, you'll, you'll see why. But um, our next natural step from theism is revelation. We could ask it this way. Has God, if there is a God, has He spoken to us? Has He told us something? And how has He done this? that. Theism is this idea that there is a personal God, there's a creator, he is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present, and he's all-good. And every flavor of theism, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or Islam, uh, will say that this God who exists has spoken to us. And each of these religions will hold up scriptures that they believe to be divine and authoritative. And so, uh, one of our main principles from last week that we just went over was truth. And we determined last week that if truth claims, if absolute claims are made that contradict one another, um, and contradiction means that one affirms what the other denies, if they contradict each other in that way, then they both can't be true at the same time. And so the truth principle on level one extends all the way up the pyramid, and so we're going to go back to it here even at level four, and when we evaluate all of these religious texts that are put forth as being from God uh, and put forth as being divinely inspired, which one of them is true? So Christianity will hold up a book that they call the Bible, and it's comprised of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Testament is just another word for covenant. And so the old covenant was made between God and the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. The new covenant is made between God and all people everywhere, you and me, and it's made possible because of the person of Jesus. So in the old covenant, in order to be a part of God's family, you had to be Jewish. In the new covenant, in order to be part of God's family, you just have to know Jesus. And so the Old Testament books of Christianity contain the Jewish scriptures of Judaism. And that might seem like a conflict, but really it's not because Christianity is regarded as a fulfillment of Judaism. So we look at the same Jewish scriptures that they do. And so let's talk about Judaism. The Jewish scriptures um, to them are what we call the Old Testament. Now, Jewish people will divide this, their scriptures, their Old Testament scriptures into three sections. Uh, they'll, they'll divide it into the Torah, which is the instructions and the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, those kind of books. The Nevi'im, which are the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, those kind of things. Uh, Kethuvim are the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature. And those are the three main sections, and they will use the first letter of each of the sections to create an acronym, T-N-K, or Tanakh. And you got to throw in the phlegm at the end of the, of the K, right? And that's what they call their Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh. And uh, the Jewish system does have particular conflicts with the Christian New Testament. Um, according to Judaism, Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, and it's not the words of the text themselves that are called into question, because both Christianity and Judaism are looking at the very same words. It's the interpretation of those words that is in conflict. And so one of them sees Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Tanakh, 
right? And one does not see that and is in fact still waiting for the Messiah to come. That would be Judaism. There's one more text. Islam will hold up a text that is called the Quran. And it's a text that Muslims believe that was orally revealed to Muhammad, the prophet, through the archangel Gabriel. It has 114 chapters. They were revealed to Muhammad over the span of 23 years. And then those revelations uh, suddenly stopped when Muhammad stopped, uh, when he died. Uh, that's kind of a shocker. Uh, God stopped talking when Muhammad died. And the Quran has direct contradictions with what the Bible teaches about many things, not the least of which are the Trinity, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Quran will say that Jesus did not die on the cross, therefore he could not have been resurrected. And it will also say that Jesus is absolutely not God's unique son. And so because of our level one understanding of truth, we know that if sacred texts like this contradict one another, when one is affirming what another specifically denies, then one is right and one is wrong. And so this is what we have. The Bible says Jesus died on a cross. The Quran said, no, he didn't. The Bible says Jesus resurrected. The Quran says, no, he didn't. Those are direct contradictions. And so, so this, if we can establish that it's plausible to believe that the Bible is reliable, then it will necessarily rule out the contradictory claims in other sacred texts. In other words, if we can come to the conclusion that we can trust what the Bible is saying is the truth and that it does line up with reality, then anything that tells us a different story can be dismissed. Now, how do we do that? How can we know that we can trust what the Bible is telling us is true? And there are some tests that we can run the Bible through. The first is the bibliographical test, and this is just, can we trust that the transmission of the Bible is exactly down through the centuries what they originally wrote? Uh, can we be certain that what we are reading is in fact uh, what was originally penned in those days? And for this, the evidence is staggering. Um, there are more than 5,800 fragments and ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some of which date to uh, fewer than 100 years after the originals would have been written. And so more than any other writing in antiquity, writings that are never doubted in their transmission or content, we have the Bible that has way more of those, um, those copies, and they are closer to the events. Josh McDowell was a skeptic. He was a college student, and some Christians got to know him and challenged him to to examine intellectually the claim that Jesus was God's son. And he took them up on it because he thought it was a farce. He decided he'd write a book that would once and for all make an intellectual joke out of Christianity. And so he thought it would be child's play to prove Christianity was a sham. It was not. This is what he wrote. He said, after trying to shatter the historicity and validity of Scripture, I came to the conclusion that it is historically trustworthy. If one discards the Bible as being unreliable, get this, then one must discard almost all literature of antiquity. He said, I believe we can hold the scriptures in our hands and say the Bible is trustworthy and historically reliable. Does that prove that the Bible is true? Turn to your neighbor and say, no, no, it doesn't. But what it does show us 
is that what we are reading is, are the words that were in, originally intended to be read by the authors of the Bible. There's another test, the internal test. And this is just the question, can we uh, trust the claims that are made in the Christian scriptures? Uh, there are several New Testament texts that refer to their authors as being eyewitnesses to the events that they wrote about, or they mention eyewitnesses, or they speak of interviewing eyewitnesses. And so we have texts like the text in Luke that we opened with, that we read together today, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, this is what Luke says to Theophilus, I have also delivered this to you, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, I'm passing this on to you so that you can have certainty in the things that you have been taught. Uh, Peter, great friend of Jesus, follower of Jesus, says this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, what's the word? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll get to this text a little more later, but uh, Paul says, I delivered to you what I received, that Christ died in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12 and then to 500 people, and then he appeared to James, and last he appeared to me as well. There's no other religious text that has the level of eyewitnesses as the Bible does, and it gives it a special credibility. Here's test number three, the external test. Are there any outside sources that provide corroboration to the claims that are made in the text? And there's an easy go-to here, first right off the bat, is archaeology. Um, over the centuries, archaeological finds have confirmed and they've never yet disproven any core New Testament references. In fact, there are uh, certain structures in Jerusalem that are mentioned in some of the Gospels that were for hundreds of years questioned as made-up landmarks until archaeology actually found them and proved that they existed just as the Scripture said they did. Archaeology has in many cases proven that the Bible does in fact match reality and what is truth. It's whatever matches reality. My favorite, though, is the ancient writings outside of the Bible. Um, we know of 10 ancient non-Christian sources that exist and were written within 150 years of Jesus' life that give us details about Jesus and Christianity. This is not scripture we're talking about. These are just outside sources like historians and authors commenting on what is going on in the day, and they mention Jesus and his story. Now, to give you some context, Tiberius Caesar was a Roman emperor who lived from 42 BC to 37 AD. Now, if you're keeping score out there, that overlaps the life of Jesus. So, Tiberius and Jesus lived at exactly the same time. And in the same 150 years after Tiberius Caesar lived, there are only nine sources that mention him. He's the emperor of the largest empire to exist on the planet in that day, 
and there are only nine sources that mention him for the next 150 years. There are 10 that mention Jesus. Even if you don't count the Christian sources as sources, which they are, you should, Jesus is mentioned by one more historian than the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And if you do include the Christian sources as sources, and you should because they are, in the first 150 years after the life of Jesus and Tiberius, Jesus outnumbers Tiberius in mentions by outside sources and sources 43 to 10. That's astounding. Now add to that this, that some of these sources are anti-Christian. They are hostile to Christianity. And that fact ratchets up the trust we can have in this book. If the opponents of the eyewitnesses claim that certain facts that the eyewitness the eyewitnesses are saying are true, if, if the enemies say that it's true, then probably those facts are true. And so, if we come to the conclusion of level four, we can at least say this, that any reasonable person, because of internal, external, and bibliographical evidence, any reasonable person would be justified in the conclusion that the Bible is essentially trustworthy. Now, that ramps up to another level because what does the Bible say? And the, the Bible, uh, we're going to put resurrection on this, this uh, level because the question is, did Jesus rise from the grave? The ultimate claim of this scripture that we've been talking about that we just decided was trustworthy, the ultimate claim is that Jesus Christ came from God and rose from the dead and his resurrection from the dead was a proof that he was indeed the Messiah who had come from God and God's only son. There is an example of this kind of claim in John chapter 10. Jesus makes it himself. He says, I and the Father are one. What's he saying? He's saying not God and I are the same person. He's saying God and I are, are the same thing. We're the same thing. That is, we are one in nature and essence. And so it's a clear claim from Jesus that he is God himself. Now, his opponents who were listening to these words picked up stones and they were ready to stone him because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And so the, the opponents of Jesus who heard these words clearly understood that he was making a divine claim to be God. There are several of those kind of things that we could point to, but this is, this is the main one. Now, anyone can claim to be God. The trick is, how do you prove that you're God? I'm not sure that we even know how to answer that question, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that his victory over death would be the proof that he really was God. And so the question is, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Gary Habermas has analyzed 2,200 resurrection sources, and out of those, he's compiled a list of minimal facts about Jesus' resurrection. And each of these minimal facts are things that the vast majority of scholars would agree on that are absolutely historical. And so here they are. Number one, Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Almost nobody disagrees with that. Number two, the disciples believed Jesus rose again and appeared to them. Almost nobody disagrees with that. Saul, a persecutor of the church, was converted and believed that Jesus was and is God. 
Nobody disputes that. The skeptic James, who is Jesus' half-brother, was converted and believed Jesus was and is God. Nobody disputes that. And number five, Jesus' tomb was empty. It's super hard to dispute that. Now, let me just talk about two of those five. First, Jesus' tomb was empty. The first recording that Jesus' tomb was actually empty is by the gospel writer Mark. Mark is the earliest of the gospels that is ever written. It's written way too quickly for any spin or legend to develop about who Jesus was and what he did. And so each of the other three gospels also tell us that the tomb was empty. And Paul also writes that the tomb was empty. Jesus' enemies conceded that the tomb was empty. That's highly significant. They did not dispute that the tomb was empty. They just tried to explain it away, and people have been doing that ever since. Uh, I want you to think about this. All those first people needed to do, those first opponents needed to do to kill Christianity was to produce a body. Just give us the body of Jesus. They knew that if they could come up with a body, this Christianity thing is dead, but they never did because the tomb was empty. Even skeptical historian Michael Grant of Cambridge says the evidence is firm and plausible that the tomb was vacant. So, if the body is gone, then what happened to it? Here's the second of those minimal facts we're going to talk about today. Jesus' followers believed that the risen Jesus appeared to them. It's what they write. Again, all four Gospels record this as being the way it went. Various disciples, all at different times, different places, saw Jesus alive after he had been sealed in a tomb as a dead man. And these are very early sources. Again, legends, haven't ha- they don't have time. Uh, spin doesn't have time to develop and happen until the first generation of eyewitnesses dies off. And then there might be some extracurricular stuff going on. But if somebody comes along today, if, if they come into this room and they say, you know what, I don't believe that two planes crashed into the Twin Towers on 9-11, what would we say? There are enough of us around that watched those planes fly into those towers. We would be able to say, you're off your rocker. We watched it happen. And so when Peter, the disciple of Jesus, raises his hand and says, I'm an eyewitness that Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. And when Paul, a killer of the church, writes and raises his hand and says, I'm an eyewitness eyewitness of what Jesus did, he resurrected. And then when Luke, a doctor in that day, writes and says, I spoke to a bunch of eyewitnesses and they all said that Jesus walked out of the tomb, it's as factual and darn near close to the same timeline as us saying, do you remember 911? Where were you that day? Everyone knows. And so, the most persuasive evidence that Jesus really did appear to his disciples occurs in a letter written by Paul only 20 years after Jesus dies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we referenced this earlier, this, we read this text through, um, there was actually a creed of the early church that Paul picks up for us, and he records it for us in 1 Corinthians. This is a creed that would have been memorized and repeated by the early believers when they got together, and they would have said it all the time, and that's why it was such a familiar saying. It it, it cites groups and individuals who were eyewitnesses 
of the resurrected Jesus. Now, here's the creed. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, and it goes this way. Paul says, this is what I received. I'm passing it on to you. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the creed. It goes on that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. That's the creed that they all would have recited when they were together. And then Paul includes himself in that list. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There's a historian that says we can be entirely confident, get this, that this creed was actually formulated within months of Jesus's death. Now, how does a creed like that develop so quickly after Jesus's death? Only if it happened that way. Only if Jesus really did walk out of a tomb and his friends saw him alive. And so this level five, we can conclude this. The historical facts are convincing that Jesus rose from the grave, and in doing so, he demonstrated and proved his divine nature. He proved that he was God. Now, what have we just done with this little pyramid experience? Thank you for coming along on the journey. We've got just one more level to go. But we started with the truth at the bottom. There is absolutely true uh, statements that are made. We, we jumped to worldviews because of absolute truth. Only one worldview survives, and it's theism. And so we looked at theism, and we found that God's fingerprints are everywhere in the world. And so the question is, has he spoken to us in a revelatory way? And the answer is yes, and the only truly trustworthy revelation of God is in the Bible. And what's the main claim of the Bible? It's that Jesus rose from the grave. Did he? Yes, we have all the evidence we need to conclude that he did. And it's this logical path that has led so many people who started out as doubters, who tried to even disprove Christianity. It's what has led them to become believers. People like Gilbert West and George Littleton and Frank Morrison and Simon Greenleaf and William Mitchell Ramsey and Viggo Olson and Josh McDowell and Richard Lumsden and Gary Parker and Lee Strobel and Job Martin. And you might not recognize those names, but they are all doubters who became believers when they tried to debunk Christianity and all of them wrote about it. And so there's one more level, and it's the gospel itself. It's the message of the good news of Jesus. That's what we're left with. The good news is the message that Jesus preached that he has proven is true because of his death and resurrection. And so the Jesus story goes like this, that Jesus is the Messiah who was sent from God to the earth, who lives a perfect life, who proves over and over and again that he is a God-like uh, person. And he is unjustly killed at the end of his life as payment for our sin. He is resurrected in triumph over death. He ascends to God in heaven and he will come back and rule one day. And we can spend forever with him if we accept his freely offered gift of grace. That's the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus speaks volumes about the afterlife. You actually do live forever. 
And it took us this little logical path to get to, to say, you know what? We can trust what Christianity is telling us about what happens after we die. Here's what Jesus says. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Here's what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Because of this little journey that we've just gone on, we have every reason to take Jesus' words about the afterlife with the utmost seriousness. I want to go back to the beginning, to Eisenhower. And I gave you what he did, right? He collected all of the evidence of the atrocities of the Holocaust, but I didn't tell you why. And Eisenhower tells us himself why he did this. He said, I made the visit to this camp deliberately in order to be in a position to give firsthand evidence of these things, if ever, in the future, there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely to propaganda. And so Eisenhower took tons of pictures of himself at concentration camps to provide evidence that he was a first-hand witness to the atrocities that were committed by the Nazi regime because he speculated, you know what, one day there might come along people who will not believe that this happened. Man, that didn't take long, did it? Holocaust deniers are absolutely a thing. Holocaust revisionists claim that the survivors of the Holocaust lied about their experiences. They claim that the Allied soldiers who liberated the camps exaggerated what they saw. They claim that the films and the photos of Nazi atrocities, even those captured from Nazis themselves, were made up. They claim that captured Nazi documents were forged. They claim that confessions made by the accused were coerced. They deny the existence of gas chambers used by the Nazis to murder millions. And they deny that they were built, or they, they claim that they were built by the Allies after the war to make Germany look bad. In addition to that, the Jews who did die in concentration camps, they say, were actually victims of disease. And in fact, they argue that the Allies themselves should be held accountable for those deaths because their bombing attacks prevented the delivery of supplies and medicines from reaching the camps. There was a supply chain issue and it was the Allies' fault. And these deniers are people who have access to an abundance of testimony, abundance of evidence of the existence of the Holocaust, and somehow, with all of this evidence available to them, the Holocaust deniers remain unconvinced that this horrific event ever even happened in human history. And Eisenhower, why did he do what he did? He hoped to avoid that. And so he gave every shred of testimony that he could, even his physical presence on site at a concentration camp. And do you realize that God has given us the very same thing in the person of Jesus, a physical presence right here on the earth. 
every shred of testimony that is needed, we have right in front of us in the person of Jesus. The text that we read at the beginning said that Jesus gave his disciples many convincing proofs that he was alive. They saw with their eyes, they touched him with their hands, they experienced him with their hearts as a resurrected Savior back from the dead, proving that you actually do live forever. And so if we want to know anything about the afterlife, Jesus Christ is the most trustworthy source. And that gets us to the top of the pyramid, and next week we get to launch out from that. Okay, if we can trust Christianity to, to tell us about the afterlife, then what does it say? Oh man, we're going to have fun the next two weeks talking about what this life after this life is going to look like. What kind of place is waiting for us? Jesus says, it's like living in a mansion. Jesus says, this life after this life that is waiting for you is kind of like a treasure that you stumble on in a field, and then you would go away, and you sell everything you ever owned, ever have, and you come back and you buy that treasure. Jesus says, this life that is waiting for you is like a king who is throwing a wedding banquet for his son, except you're the son. There's no more death in this world. There's no more crying. Every tear is wiped away because the old order has passed away. It's a, it sounds like, sounds like the life we've always wanted but have never had. And we'll jump into details about heaven for the next two weeks. But today, the invitation is that you can have heaven right now. And you can enjoy it and experience it forever. And all it takes is a surrender in faith and repentance and baptism to the one who has made heaven possible. Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to the one who makes life possible. I am the resurrection and the life. There's nothing, nothing better that you can do today than surrender to the one who makes life possible. 